0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. I hope that you had a good week. We kind of did here at the Shelton household, and uh, things are moving along quite well. Spring break is in the air, so I am on a little bit of a hiatus from my uni studies for a couple weeks, but not really because we have papers due and presentations to do, and so I'm f- flat out kind of working on that stuff uh, or at least trying to and keeping up my channel at the same time. So it's been an exciting adventure um, with, let's see, a couple things I want to tell you guys about. I have not promoted my critical uh, merchandise site in quite a while where you can get wonderful clothing and logos and things like that on shirts, mugs, hats, whatever. Um, so check it out. Link is below. Critical merchandise. We've got some really fun Scientology related content and critical thinking content there that you guys can uh, wear and share and get the good word out about both of these things. So please do check that out. And it also is a great way of supporting this channel. It was, I I did that specifically so you guys could have a way of supporting the channel and getting something fun and uh, goofy and, and interesting and even in some ways educational for yourselves. All right, so you guys can check that out. Um, This week, podcast, I want to push a little bit because I thought it was pretty good. It was an interview that I did a couple weeks ago. I have a little bit of a chatty Cathy in it, but it is um, about indoctrination and radicalization. And I got a chance to talk about those subjects and the spectrum of influence and how indoctrination works and how radicalization works in social groups and cults and Scientology and things like that. So I hope you guys will give that a listen. It was actually someone else, Penny, interviewing me for a private con- convention, uh, Paganacon 2021. And um, and so, but I got her agreement beforehand that, you know, if it if it looked pretty good, then I would post it on my podcast as well. And it looked pretty good, so I did that. <laughs> so anyway, I hope you guys will check that out. So let's get on with your questions now. We've got some pretty interesting ones this week. Michael Blau, an interesting subject just occurred to me, auditor worksheets. This was one of the most challenging areas for me as a student auditor, making an accurate record of what occurred during an auditing session. Hubbard said not to practice stenographic auditing, to take down every word the PC says. He wanted his auditors to limit the contents of worksheets to essential information. But to be accurate, I found it difficult to avoid writing down virtually everything my PC said in response to the auditing questions. With modern education apparently abandoning instruction in the cursive form of handwriting, what do you see as the future of auditor training? Will Scientology become obligated to teach cursive to all auditors? Will a form of rapid printing become a new skill and requirement for auditors? Might electronic worksheet creation finally become a tool invented to support auditing, a tool arguably more useful than the e-meter itself? Michael, thank you very much for this question. It brings to mind so many memories and things from my Scientology time that I thought we might comment on here. And I did shorten down your question. You had mentioned a couple other things, which I'll try to go over here in answering your question for the general audience. Um, First off, uh, this is the subject of what the auditors in a Scientology counseling auditing session... We know they write stuff down. We talk about it all the time. They have folders and and papers and lots of files on all Scientologists. They keep copies of letters they send you. They keep copies of all the invoices from your services. They keep copies of your success stories. But they also keep worksheets of every single auditing session, almost every single, and 99.9% of all auditing sessions that are delivered have worksheets of some kind being kept because it's the record that the session happened. And so let's talk about these. I thought it would be fun, and Michael, your question is perfectly timed, to talk about this in some detail. Now, in my future, in my future <laughs> is the creation of this production of this e-meter video that I'm you know, talking about for literally years, and I do get that it's a sore spot for people. Um, I'm going to finish my uni studies and I'm going to get that video done. That's my plan and it is going to happen. Um, but part of that video will be showing what these worksheets actually look like. And, and they're part of the process of using the meter and that's why I'll, I'll have that in there. But I'll describe right now what this is about to give you guys some more information about it that you might find kind of interesting. You know, what are they keeping? It's not just notes about what the person is saying. The auditor actually has to keep a lot, track of a lot more than just that. And it actually is a skill that is practiced and drilled over and over again in Scientology classrooms to teach auditors how to keep good worksheets. The worksheets have to be legible, and often they are not. Uh, but they're supposed to be, they need to be, because it's not just the auditor who's in the session writing stuff down who's going to read it. The worksheets, for you guys who have followed my channel for a while, you know that the auditing sessions go to a case supervisor, another person. Once the session's done, you know, the folder, everything gets packaged up, and the folder goes to the case supervisor who, you know, opens it up, reads the worksheets, reads through every other report in the folder, and then decides what the next step is for this pre-clear. pre-clear. That's, that's how Scientology auditing is kind of administered. So the worksheets are kind of important because the auditor doesn't go and tell the case supervisor what happened. It's all supposed to be in the worksheets. Um, so what's in there? Well, you have, it's a two-column legal size piece of paper. You write the number on top and you write a, a, a line down the middle, and you just start keeping track of what's going on. You are writing down notes about what the person is saying. You're also writing down notes about what the e-meter is doing. If there is a response or a reaction on the meter to the questions or to what the person is saying even, you're supposed to write those reactions down on the worksheets too. You also note every time you're noting these kind of reactions or notes, the time that it happens, so you have a running record, minute by minute, of what's going on in the session, and the, and the and the case supervisor and other people who see these in the future can kind of see how the session went and how it was paced. Um, you will note down the the uh, other indications from the meter besides just what the needle is doing on the dial. You'll also note um, the tone arm reaction, in other words, where how much it's supposed to be a measure of how deep into the incidence the pre-clear is. The person who's getting auditing is called a pre-clear. And, um, and so if you're really heavy, deep down, you know, a million years ago, and it's all uh, that there's a dial on the meter that kind of moves up as it's, as, and it's a reflection of resistance and um, to the flow of electronic, you know, the electronic flow going through the person's body. That the meter is actually registering so that's something that you note down that's called the ta or tone arm position um you will also note down at the beginning of the session some other things about what the meter is how it looks and how it was set up you will um also have other forms and things come in during the auditing like a correction list uh which is a set of prepared questions to ask the preclear on the meter and note the reactions. So that's another form, and you would write the needle reactions on the form, but then if one of them responds and you're gonna take it up with the preclear, let's say you're reading this list of questions. You know, were you upset about something? No response. Um, Did you get into an accident, you know, or something, right? And, And the meter responds, And so maybe that's question number seven on the form. So the auditor puts the form aside and picks up the worksheets, writes down question seven, notes the response, and then looks up at the pre-clear and says, okay, what, did you get into an accident? And the guy goes, oh, yeah, blah, 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 and proceeds to write down on the worksheets what's going on. So, So it's kind of, it's like I said, it's this running record. The auditors are trained to not write down every single word the person says. As you mentioned, uh, Mike, in your question, that would be called stenographic auditing, and nobody's really interested in every single word the guy said. They want the gist of it. They want to know what you know what the what the and the specifics are more important in the sec checking, the security checking, the, in, the interrogatories than they are in the general course of auditing. You know, you don't necessarily, in other words, if you're, if you're running a, a chain, a, a series of Dianetics, you know, incidents where you've got pain and unconsciousness and the person is like having an accident a bricks falling on his head. So you start with an incident where the guy had a brick fall on his head and you note down brick on his head, you know, seventh grade, uh, you know, was in school, very painful. You know, and this guy could be going on at a mad rate about all the details of the incident, but you're just noting down general, you know, the the general summary idea of what happened. Because you're also trying to listen. You're also trying to look at the guy. Most of this writing is done without looking at the paper. You're that practiced on it that you can write without necessarily having to look down very often Uh, because you're supposed to have your attention on the person in front of you and on the e-meter in front of you, and you cannot ever take your eyes away so that you don't see what the meter is doing, even if it's out of the corner of your eye. And there are drills and practice exercises that Scientologists do and when they're training with a meter to be able to read it, even if they're looking over here or over here or something like that, you see. Um, So there's a lot of attention on that in an auditing session as far as the auditor is concerned. Um, and then, uh, let's see, you mentioned the curse of handwriting. So Hubbard was, uh, Hubbard said in one of the bulletins about keeping notes for a session that, um, he said that I think he got a little fed up with people telling him how hard it was to write down the worksheets. And he was like, Hey, look guys in the, you know, 1800s. There were secretaries who were able to write, I think what he said was glowing copper plate writing as fast as a person could talk. These secretaries were trained to write this way. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's what Hubbard claimed. And, he's, and he was making the point to say, if they could keep perfect copper plate, beautiful cursive handwriting fast as a guy is talking, then the least you guys can do is keep some legible notes of the auditing session that you just did. You dorks, you know, I mean, it was kind of that attitude. So Hubbard wanted, you know, good handwriting. However, I, for example, have horrible handwriting, horrible cursive. I've always been bad at it. So I block printed my writing when I was doing worksheets. It was not cursive. It was it was just block printing. Um, so you can do that. You can get away with that as long as it's legible and as long as you're keeping up with the pre-clear and you're not distracting him, you would never in an auditing session, uh, no matter how much the guy is sitting there going on at a mad rate, you would never try, you would really go out of your way as an auditor to not interrupt him and not be like, okay, wait a minute, what was that? Okay, hang on, what? Okay, what? You, 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 that would be really, really, really bad. Auditors would get chastised and corrected for that. You don't distract the preclear that way in a session. Okay, so you got to have all your attention on the auditing commands because those are the ones that are brainwashing you, right? So you don't want to be distracted by the auditor. <laughs> Um, But what this also reminded me of, and Michael, which I thought you might find amusing, was I used to openly talk about how there should be a voice-to-electronic, digital way to record um, worksheets because we are now in the era, and I was talking about this in the early um, I think I was talking about this as early as the, as the 1990s. I mean, it was like, because there was a, there was Dragon speaking. It was a voice dictation software that had just come out. And I was like, well, damn, if we can do this, then what if we did this in an auditing session? and And what if the auditing, what if there was a device that would record what was being said and transcribing it in the session so that the auditor didn't have to worry about that part of the worksheets, and they could just keep notes, you know, for themselves of what was going on. This, of course, is counter to what Hubbard said as far as how auditing should be done because Hubbard came up in a time when those kind of things didn't exist and wouldn't exist. There they, they wouldn't even be the, necessarily the concept of it. So Scientologists have not turned over or changed over to a voice to text or you know, voice to digital recording medium to use for the auditing sessions, even though it would be more accurate and it would be more, or at least it could be, especially as voice technology has really, really improved over the decades. I mean, it's impressive how good, um, you know, the, the technology is now. It still makes some pretty big blunders sometimes, but you can teach it too. Once you get the software and a package and a a little AI aspect of it, then you can teach the software how to recognize your voice and kind of, um, you know, get better tuned into how you talk. So you could get some pretty interesting, um, you know, pretty accurate, rather, uh, worksheets just from the digital recording. Well, they don't do that, but they do audio record many, many, many of the auditing sessions, or they will video record with audio the auditing sessions now, but they don't do that to record the content of the session for posterity so that they keep it in the folder, they videotape or uh, record onto CDs or DVDs now in order to um, review and inspect the auditing or, of course, for sensitive matters, security checking, you know, blackmail sort of thing, they will record celebrities, like every celebrity session, I believe, is recorded as a matter of policy. I believe there are probably certain VIPs who get auditing. Uh, Rich people, let's say the whales, for example, when they go to flag, I'm pretty sure their auditing would be recorded on video as a matter of course. But I can't be 100% sure about that. Um, They have that look-in system that they use to do the recording where you get a split screen of what's on the e-meter and what the session looks like kind of from the side or from the back. So they're they're pretty they, they've gotten a little sophisticated with this in terms of what they what they want to do and can do without violating what Hubbard said to do. But Hubbard was very clear that auditors are to keep worksheets and those worksheets are to go in the folders and the folders are what go back and forth to the case supervisor. So that system's going to stay in place until David Miscavige basically balls up to change it. And then when he does, he'll come up with whatever excuse he wants to, to change it. Um, But for now, they're not doing that. They're sticking with the old style system. And at the end of the day, you know, the digital to voice tech is still not perfect. And that would probably be the justification for why they wouldn't do it, because you don't want inaccuracies as best as you can prevent them when the information is going, you know, is being recorded, because you want, you know, because it might well be, that the folder is pulled in six months or a year, and that session is reviewed. And if there's inaccuracies in what the guy said, then you're going to mess up the instructions of what to do about it. And that would be a real concern that they would have. Um, That's not a fake concern. They would really be worried about that. So that's probably why they, even to this day, one of the reasons why they haven't implemented that would be that practical reason too. So anyway, I thought you guys might find that kind of interesting. And uh, there you go. NEM 08. Let's say two people have the same engram, the same incident involving pain and unconsciousness. This means both guys have the same reactive recordings in that period of time of unconsciousness, including the spoken words from a third person. So according to Dianetics, If they were both to run, quote-unquote, that same incident in auditing, they should have the same recall of the surroundings, including the spoken words that have been said during their time of unconsciousness. Is there any such evidence you know of? Any such case where they actually say the same spoken words from the engram? Or is there any evidence that proves that this is not the case and engrams don't exist? you will find or can find claims within the world of Scientology of people saying that they ran the same incidents, right? Um and came up with the same recalls. But that's a matter really of remembering the hits and forgetting the misses because um no two people in the world recall two this, the same incident the same way. It just doesn't really happen that way our memories uh don't don't work like that. And um Anyway, there's a, there's the, the, you're, you're asking basically about memory here. So let me give you two answers, the Scientology answer and then the non-Scientology answer. The Scientology answer is that, yes, this is completely possible because the full recall, the full memory of everything that happened is recorded perfectly in your mind. And it's really just a matter of us working it out and developing it. And remember, I think I answered a question a couple of weeks ago about this, about how they develop memories in Scientology. And it's a lot in auditing. It can be a lot like developing a Polaroid picture. You work it over and work it over and work it over, and you get the memory back. And um, by attacking it basically through different perceptions. If you can't see, well, what do you smell? If you can't smell anything, well, what do you hear? can't hear anything. Well, what are you you aware of at all? Is there any sense of anything? You know, and you kind of try to develop it. Um, And the claim from Hubbard is that we've all got a perfect 360 degree 3D recall memory storage pictures of everything that's ever happened to us. Uh, This doesn't happen to be true, but it's what Hubbard claims. So were that true, then theoretically, your scenario would be easy to replicate because you would just have to work over the incidents in a dianetic auditing session to the point that people, you know, that both people fully remembered everything that happened. And of course, if that is true, then they would both remember the same things happening with the same words. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Right. But then you find in the real world, this breaks down almost 100% of the time. Why? Well, because people don't remember that way. There is no mechanism in the brain for people to remember every single thing that ever happened to them. It is severe outliers, very, very rare people who can actually remember everything accurately that ever happened to them. It's, It's actually more of a uh, it's such an outlier. It's it, it's almost like an X Men kind of thing. Like it just doesn't it just doesn't happen that often, and people who can do that, you know, often have memory tricks or memory uh, methods that they're using. There's a memory palace, or you know, there's different ways to describe it, um, and it's quite interesting. It's a very very interesting thing, and I've I've gone down the you know looking into that. Um, but it's not how your average person uses their memory or, or even, you know, stores things in their brain in terms of memory. Uh, so that being the case, the real answer to the question is no, that's not going to work out at all um, because people remember things differently, even the exact same thing. And if you want proof of this, go down to the police station and talk to some cops about, you know, multiple reports of the same accident. You'll get different colors of car hitting different colors of car. You'll have people who, I mean, you you know, we see this over and over again that people's perceptions are fooled and their memory is even worse because then they're having to recall the perception and the perception might not have been accurately recorded. I mean, there's so many ways that this can mess up and that you don't get a word for word dictated memory of what actually occurred. Um, it's just, it just has to do with neuroscience and how our memories work. I don't really want to go into more detail about it than that. Um, I have done podcasts on this with a neuroscientist, so you can look those up. Um, those were, I think this year we did that work. So, or no, sorry, not this year, last year. So, um, anyway, so check those out because there's, uh, there's some good stuff there with that, with that neuroscientist I talked to, um, yeah, I don't know of any cases. And in fact, I believe in the early days of Dianetics, Hubbard was making claims that they had tested this and found it to be the case that they would get the same data from two different people. But I think the reality is that that never actually happened. Hubbard just lied about that because they couldn't get accurate you know, recall from two different people. In fact, the very first clear, Sonia Bianca, I think her name was. Couldn't even recall the color of Hubbard's tie when she turned around. I mean, talk about memory problems. She didn't have any kind of eidetic memory going on. So, um, but yet Hubbard had claimed that eidetic memory was a was a phenomena of clear, and that Sonia here was the very first clear. So here we go, right? And um, and that didn't work out at all. So anyway, not sorry, not the very first clear. I don't think he said that, but she was a clear, and she was supposed to be this, you know, do this demonstration. And this was in, I think, June or July of, ni- uh, maybe August, 1950. So early on, Hubbard was, was trying to prove that, you know, Dianetics actually works. But every single time they tried it, it didn't really work out at all. And, and in fact, you know, it was rather humiliating. So that's what I can speak to on that point. Uh, let me know if you have any other questions about that. Silo Simon, I am kind of nerdy about video games. I was curious about whether or not playing video games or playing specific types of video games is something that Scientologists look down upon. Do they consider it largely to be a waste of time? From what I gather, it seems like watching movies or television in your free time, if you ever have any, is not a big deal. I'm curious about video games considering they became popularized much later in time. All right, thank you for this question, Silo Simon. And I can say that Scientologists pretty much skew average in terms of responses and uses of video games. In other words, I like my, my grew up with Atari and um, cuz that was what was coming out in the early 80s, 70s and 80s and um, and my dad was all over that. They would stay up all night playing Breakthrough, right? Or Breakaway and uh, and Pac-Man and stuff like that. It was my dad's system. It wasn't mine. He was the one playing it. Uh, So, you know, they can get into video games just as much as anybody else. But at the same time, you will absolutely find Scientologists who will be down on video games, very conservative attitudes about it. And it's harmful, destructive, not good for you, you know, increases violent tendencies, this kind of thing. You will absolutely find Scientologists who believe that crap, even though we absolutely know that not to be true. And I wanted to comment on this because it really goes along the same lines as how Scientologists think about Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy or role-playing games or anything where your mind is being, you know, kind of creating and visualizing and really getting into kind of a different reality, right? And now with virtual reality, that actually is the case with video games is they are fully immersive. Um, and that is a concern for Scientologists because of a factor they think of, which is called re-stimulation. And this is where, you know, all this stored pain and trauma and crap you've been carrying around with you over all these millions of years. Well, a video game or a fantasy role-playing game can approximate the conditions of that past trauma or stress. In other words, it can remind you of it. And what that word is in Scientology is it will re-stimulate it. It brings it back into play. I'm talking about this old trauma, this old stress, this old pain you're carrying around with you. And then it keys in is the word. It keys in on you and it re-stimulates. And so then through artificial means, through a video game, through a role-playing game, you have re-stimulated actual charge, mental energy, that is going to harm you, that's going to be destructive to you, that's not going to help you out in your life, it's going to hurt you. So that, for that reason, Scientologists will eschew or, or regulate kids in Scientology or adults in Scientology playing these games, playing video games, because of this re-stimulation factor. This is the same reason why Scientologists are kind of down on porn for the most part is especially as you get into the Sea Org and that level of Scientology is they're really down on it. I mean, it's just forbidden. Uh, no porn, you know, not, they don't say no video games, but it's it's light. It, and, and of course, you don't have time for it in the Sea Org. I mean, you might have a, a a personal, you know, switch or a console or something like that that you can play on, but it's not like you're going back to your room at night and, and hooking up your PlayStation. It doesn't, that, that's not the Sea Org lifestyle at all. Um, you're just not going to have access to that kind of stuff in the org staff, public. They, you know, they get they can go down to Best Buy and buy a PlayStation and, and play it at home when they're off from their org time or you know not doing classes and stuff. And nobody's really going to have a whole lot to say about it, unless there's some kind of negative consequence from that whole restimulation factor, in which case they'll have all kinds of things to say about it. So. So it's a little, you know, it's a little complicated, it's a little uh, nuanced, but that's that's kind of how that works in that in that world. Jonathan Perry. I don't know if you've heard this, but it's been in the news that the former head of the Israeli space program has come forward and said that aliens are real and we have been in contact for a few years. He says they are peaceful, just curious about us, and the United States is aware of this and is also involved. What I'm wondering is if Scientologists have heard this due to their isolation, but if they were to hear this, would it cause them to double down on their belief system, perhaps make it even more difficult for people to escape or simply to stop asking questions? What effect would this have on the Scientology community? All right, Jonathan, thank you for that. And I'm glad you didn't ask me to comment on the the veracity or truth of the Israeli prime minister. Uh, or head of the Israeli space program, sorry, uh, saying that, because uh, I don't really have an opinion on that one way or the other. But it's interesting how Scientologists would respond to this. It's a good question, because they would absolutely believe this to be true without even question. They would just accept it as a matter of course, because Scientologists very, very much do have that space alien, you know, space-faring civilizations kind of idea. Um, they, they, they easily accept that to be true. you know. Now, not all lower-level Scientologists have yet been exposed to that information, so we don't want to make blanket statements about every Scientologist believes in space aliens or something. It doesn't quite work that way. But as you get more and more involved in the cosmology, the mythology of Scientology, you will buy into this belief system. Absolutely. Um, so what Scientologists do, by the way— and why I thought this would be interesting to answer is because they will look for confirmation outside of the world of Scientology for their Scientology beliefs, and they'll use that to double down on on what Hubbard has to say. We're always looking for confirmation of our beliefs. This is what confirmation bias is all about. Um, and and you can find you know little bits and pieces that you can look at and go, oh well, that proves you know, uh, that that L. Ron Hubbard was right. You know, so every every case where there's a curious UFO sighting or example, or every case where, you know, there's strange things going on, the Scientologists are like, yeah, of course. And in fact, they are not just um, assisted in this by the overall mythology of Scientology, but actually by L. Ron Hubbard saying things in lectures like I was sitting there eating my dinner one night, and my daughter came in in these high white boots, you know, these vinyl boots that kids wear these days. This was a lecture in the 60s. And, uh, and my daughter Diana came into the dining room, and I thought, I just saw the little boots, and I thought to myself, oh, space boots. And he thought, as he continued to relate, which I'm not going to continue doing this horribly bad voice impression of L. Ron Hubbard, he continued to relate in this story that he did not see Diana for a second, his daughter. He thought those were space boots from from the invader force that had just landed here and the jig was up and they were here to take out Scientology, right? Literally, Hubbard talked about that in a lecture one day. Um, so Scientologists are a little primed to believe that the aliens might come any day. And if they do, it's not necessarily good news because remember they have invader forces in their past. In other words, alien civilizations that move forward through space and invade other planets and take them over conquest. And there have been a number of these invader forces that have come through this solar system, Hubbard says. So um, so Scientologists are very primed to believe in aliens and UFOs and all of it. And they'll use this message from the former head of the Israeli space program or any other information they come across to confirm their beliefs. That's how that works. So anyway, just thought you might find that a, a little amusing. Cyprian Ivanov. Given that analogies play a huge role in thinking about a complex situation, what analogies did LRH and DM use to describe things? I know that LRH borrowed a lot of stories from military lore, such as wanting to visit the stockade to see men who could fight, not look pretty on the parade ground. The moral implications of military service when speed and decisiveness are sometimes lifesavers are different than those of a non-lethal environment but do Sea Org members think about the difference in moral issues? Okay, Ciprian, thank you for this question. And no, Sea Org members do not really make wide, broad, nuanced distinctions when it comes to moral issues. It's Hubbard's way or the highway, and that's pretty much how the Sea Org thinks about things. It's a very march in lockstep, do what Hubbard says, it's Hubbard's way or the highway. That is the attitude of the Sea Org. And if you're a good Sea Org member, then it's a virtue to think that way. It's a, it's, it's virtuous, it's it's a it's a good thing that you are marching in lockstep. It's a bad thing, it's immoral, it's out ethics for you to disagree with the group, to disagree with L. Ron Hubbard, to disagree with what's going on. Um, so yeah, so they don't really think about things at that level. They're not deep thinkers because they are indoctrinated out of being deep thinkers. You don't want deep thinking going on in a group like the C-Org. You want compliance. You want conformity. Okay. Um, as far as analogies go, though, I, uh, Hubbard did often, often use military analogies in his lectures. He also talked often about his time as a writer, pulp fiction writer, um, even as a writer, as an educator, because he would sometimes go and do lectures and talks about writing, and he talked about that. Um, so he would use analogies out of his wartime. He would use analogies out of his writing career mostly. And from his flying time, he would use analogies with flying um, because he really prided himself on his barnstorming years. And of course, he would use seafaring analogies because Hubbard was a um, sailor and that was legit. He really did know how to sail and he really did know how to captain boats. And so he would use analogies all the time from ocean seafaring stories and stuff like that. Um, Miscavige... Miscavige is interesting because he tends to draw his analogies more from, well, they're written for him for the most part. um, But when he presents, whether they're his or whether they're written for him by Dan Sherman or somebody else, he will tend to go for pop culture analogies more so. He relates to current events. He wants to try to stay relevant and current and look like he knows what he's talking about in terms of current events. So he will use... Um, comparisons and examples and analogy from current events, and he will try to be—he will try to use clever analogies. Um, and let me give you a very specific example: was when the Golden Age of Tech was released in 1996. Hubbard, um, you know, we talk here the, on this show, or I've done videos about uh, evals and analysis and stuff like that. Well, uh, it, it, when the golden age of tech, when when Miscavige in 1996 decided to basically rewrite how Scientology training would be done, he sold it with an analogy, and the analogy was that the blind had been leading the blind. That was, the, that was the phrasing that he used to explain why it was that Scientology training was in the toilet and why it was so badly done and why it needed to have a whole overhaul is because the blind had been leading the blind, you know, and everybody, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense, right? And so Miscavige got away with basically completely overhauling Scientology training and slowing it down to a snail's crawl. I mean, he, he made it so much worse. Um, but that was the analogy. That was the example that he used, right? the phrasing. So anyway, um, that was one that came to mind right away. so I thought that might be uh, interesting in answering the question. But that's um, that's how I remember them talking about things and and uh, and drawing similes and comparisons. So there you go All right, let's do some flash answers. Adria Vici Halub. How's your mom doing, particularly during this time of isolation due to COVID-19? Thanks very much for asking. My mom is actually doing great. She and my stepdad are both fully vaccinated and uh, live in large in California. (laughs) Sandy Del Rey, in your Q&A number 301, you talked about situations that would ban a person from Scientology. What about someone with Down syndrome or autism? How would they even begin to deny them services? Sandy, this one actually is uh, too easy because Hubbard wrote specifically that auditing will not work on people who have severe neurological damage or disorders. If the neural system, if the brain or nervous system is damaged uh, in significant ways and both autism and Down syndrome have that feature, um, then, you know, neurological conditions, in other words, um, then they can deny you auditing. They say, yeah, no, it's just not going to really work on you because you got neurological damage and the brain doesn't really process the way it's supposed to. And so we can't really do the procedure on you. And that's that would be the end of the story. Travis, do you like or dislike the baby shark song? (laughs) Okay, I kind of hate the baby shark song, uh, but I looked it up, actually, because I hadn't actually sat and listened to it all the way through until today. Eight billion views on YouTube. I prefer the hard, the heavy metal version. I've put a link to it in the show notes below if you want to check that out. That's the baby shark I like. OK, guys, thanks for coming along and watching me on this show and listening to me rattle on and on at a mad rate with answers to your questions. I really appreciate being invited into your home every week. And I really appreciate your support and uh, your liking of my show. That all being said, I will see you guys next week. Again, consider that Critical Merchandise site if you are at all interested in fun, goofy, critical thinking, Scientology merch. And of course, if you like my show, you can always follow me on Patreon. That is what keeps the lights on and the show going. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.